Welcome to the Review of Democracy. I'm your host, Lorena Dracula, Assistant Editor here at Revdem, and today's guest is Bodo Weber, an expert in the Western Balkans and a senior associate at the Democratization Policy Council in Berlin. He deals mostly with Western policy towards the region since the 1990s, and will be diving into the Kosovo-Serbia dialogue and its impact on democracy in the region. Welcome, Mr. Weber. Thank you for the invitation. So this year we have witnessed attempts at normalizing relations between Kosovo and Serbia and also significant escalation of the tensions between them. So at the time of our conversation, June 29, 2023, there has been no breakthrough in easing these tensions around the border for almost a month. So the topics surrounding the signing of the normalization agreement in February have been pushed to the side. I wanted to ask you in the beginning, how would you describe the current status of the Kosovo-Serbia negotiations, which issues have remained particularly contested and why has it proven so difficult to overcome these tensions and conflicts? Oh, wow, that's a very fundamental question about what the dialogue is about, what the status of Kosovo-Serbia status dispute, where it stands, and basically about the history of the EU-led political dialogue, which is now already 11 years old. It's a decade since the f- so-called first agreement on full normalization of relations between Kosovo and Serbia has been signed, the so-called April Agreement of 2013. Maybe we can start with the current situation in the north of Kosovo, the current escalation. I would, first of all, insist that this is the most serious crisis within this decade of political dialogue, which you can take the situation in the North as an indicator. As I said, political dialogue has basically started with a change of regime in Serbia from the post-October 5th, 2000 governments led by the parties that were in opposition to the Milosevic regime in the 1990s back to the nationalist parties that were ruling in the 1990s with a reverse relationship with the socialists as the as, as Milosevic socialists as a minor party and the successor or breakaway SNS to the radical party in the leading role in summer 2012. And the dialogue basically started right after government formation in autumn 2012. There's been numerous agreements. No, let me be more correct. There's been only one agreement and numerous side agreements or implementing agreements or minor agreements on individual aspects in this period. But what we have never had in that decade, and this is what we've seen since last year with this new phase negotiation on the so-called German-French initiative, German-French plan slash EU plan, which led to the it gets complicated. The declaring of an agreement on a basic agreement and the declaring of an agreement in March in Ohrid, North Macedonia, on an implementation. So within that year, we have seen something we have never seen in, in a negative sense throughout the whole history of the political dialogue. That is that in parallel with negotiating over an agreement and signing of an agreement, which would normally be the beginning of the implementation stage, a continuing deepening escalation of the situation on the ground, and that is in the north. Started with the so-called license plate issue last summer, then end of last year, first escalation with the barricades in the north, and then um, 
Terps directed by the Pocic in Belgrade, leaving the Kosovo state institutions, municipal institutions, mayors, councillors, offices, and most gravely, police and judiciary. They had joined as a result of the April 2013 agreement, and then going all the way down to what was originally termed as a step towards returning Serbs to part of that institution, municipal elections in the north in April, with the, again, Belgrade-directed last-minute dropping out the basically extended arm of Mr. Vucic, the Serbian German municipalities, the political party arm, the so-called Serbian list, and other Serbian parties also forced to, to boycott that elections up to, you know, the electing of ethnic Albanian mayors by maybe three to five percent of voters or non-serve voters. And then the May 26 push of Prime Minister Kurti of seating those mayors by force with the help of police into the mayoral offices and buildings that led to the May 29 violence, seeing 50 Kosovo policemen being injured, and the continuing protests and violent incidents on both ends. To sum this up, this is happening in parallel of a new negotiating phase and the signing of, or again, not signing, but declaring agreement on an agreement and an implementation annex. So now the situation in the North concerning status is probably worse than it was before the establishment of the political dialogue. Unlike so far in the political dialogue phase, we don't have um, Kosovo police and judiciary from the north. But unlike before the political dialogue, we have no police de facto and judiciary because until the signing of the April Agreement and implementation of the judiciary and police part, we at least had Serbian state police and judiciary. They were not doing their job. There were more assimilation, but at least they were physically institutionally existing. So currently there's a complete institutional rule of law by common. So taking this together, one has to insist and conclude, as I said at the beginning, this by far is the deepest crisis in the political dialogue since its establishment in 2012 and in Kosovo server relations, probably since a serious barricades and violence and clashes between Serb protesters or organized gangs, NK4 in summer 2011. So now to your question, what is the root course? I see the major responsibility of this original dialogue with its incremental approach, you know, already starting as a process with some clear principles and red lines, though informally declared, like you no know, discussion about border changes anymore. That was basically also a de facto precondition expressed as a statement by then-Chancellor Merkel to entering into those negotiations. And the entire principle of Serbia de facto recognizing the fact that Kosovo is gone in return for progressing on its EU membership aspiration path through gradually making steps towards normalization, both of bilateral relations between Kosovo and Serbia. That's why the first agreement was called the first agreement, which was meant to have a process where de facto the end point was known to both sides. That is full normalization as full bilateral relations, including at the end full formal recognition of the independence of Kosovo by Serbia. And in that intermediate period in which Serbia would still not formally recognize Kosovo, 
dismantling of parallel structures in, in the Serb majority municipalities. That means removal of institutions of the Serbian state on Kosovan soil and the integration of Kosovo Serbs, particularly in the north. So this was this was the roadmap of the political dialogue. Unfortunately, it got lost in translation due to the lack of a long-term strategy and master plan that was then skillfully exploited by the political players in Kosovo and Serbia. It ultimately led after a few years to a complete deadlock in the implementation of the dialogue. A second agreement got deadlocked by, by no coincidence over the still unresolved hot issue of the so-called association of Serb majority. You already mentioned basically how the Kosovo-Serbia negotiations progressed since the dialogue was initiated. And you mentioned some of the major agreements that have been made and then for some reason were deadlocked or could not progress any further. Could you tell a bit about what were the key obstacles that have been encountered along the way? Well, I mean, um, the detail of the history of the dialogue, its various phases started very promising, I would say, even historically, in the sense of a breakthrough towards a sustainable solution of the Kosovo-Serbia status dispute. Why did it then got stuck already around 2015? why it was reversed into its opposite with the leading role of Western officials during 2017 and 2020 in the so-called land swap negotiating phase. Why then in 2020, uh, when this phase uh, thankfully ended with failure under the new EU special representative for the dialogue, Mr. Lajak, we had a kind of intermediate period, 2020 to 2022, in which no serious negotiations could take place was more simulation of negotiations. And then why we have seen this attempt by Berlin and Paris to revamp, restart the dialogue, getting back to the core issue, the status issue. I mean, one has to stress again, as I already noted, that recognition of Kosovo at the end of the process was known to all the actors, or both sides when they entered the dialogue, and they did not reject to enter it under that de facto condition. The April Agreement 2013, this is important to recall, when we now have the dispute by Mr. Kurti and Mr. Vujic, what is the effect of in the new basic agreement? Mr. Kurti's insistence, which is correct, that this is a de facto recognition. The April Agreement was already a de facto recognition of the effect of the independent Kosovo by Serbia. Some constitutional lawyers back then in Serbia even insisted that it was for them also even at the euro recognition, but of course, open to legal interpretation. So, I mean, through this, uh, Kosovo got the SAA agreement, despite five non-recognizers, so a major breakthrough that showed that if there is leadership within the EU on the issue, the formal division over Kosovo does not uh, have to block EU being an important decisive actor. Serbia got the opening of accession negotiations. So this was a, a, a pretty different phase. The question of, you know, where Serbia under the old parties on the 1990s was still an open issue, including on internal developments, democracy and rule of law. Because as I said, there was a new government coming in with an anti-corruption narrative, though coming from the old nationalist war policy background. Uh, but it was under Mr. Vucic and then basically agreeing on the path towards getting rid of the Kosovo issue and of Kosovo. So this was an open process. This should not be forgotten because in retrospect today, 
if you look at uh, the authoritarian autocratic transformation of Serbia and Vucic and this messy state of what's left of this dialogue, it all looks pretty different. This was a process that had an implicit roadmap and an implicit endpoint, but not written down anywhere. The issue of a long-term strategy, how to get the intermediate steps to get to the endpoint, uh, was crucial. And there was none. And that was one of the key problems in the whole fabric of the dialogue, uh, despite its historic beginning. One has to take into account that the April agreement signing was a result of major actors intensely negotiating with both sides over nine months from September 2012 to April 2013, including Washington, London, and Berlin, particularly, and then the former leading role by the EU Foreign and Security Policy Chief, Ashton. But the key power actors were in those three Western capitals. So nine months of intensely dealing with small Kosovo and Serbia, of course, was um, decisive, but it was not a recipe for leading a process that might take 10 years. So that meant handing over the process, the operational side to Brussels, where the history of the common foreign and security policy is institutionally and politically wise, still is not on a level to really lead such a process. So that's why a master plan or a long-term strategy defining the sequencing was so important. And that plan did not exist. So then it seems no coincidence that in around 2014-15, the process started to go down and then definitely being deadlocked in 2015 over the issue of the association, because 2014, we had Crimea annexation. So attention of Western capital starting with Berlin, shifting somewhere else and not being able to maintain the same intensity. Now, what that meant for the the process and why it got stuck of the dialogue and the April agreement is the following. Uh, there were two issues that basically deadlocked or killed the process, this incremental approach. One is, while the April agreement uh, had an implementation plan that was far more detailed in terms of sequencing and timelines than the offered agreement this year, uh, negotiators and the team in Brussels from the beginning made a major mistake that opened the path for the players in Belgrade and Pristina to undermine and instrumentalize the process for their interests. They very early on allowed Belgrade to the working groups on the technical details on the implementation of the agreement. So this was the beginning signaling a weakness and an opening for the parties to undermine, slow down implementation. So that meant also lessons to Pristina later. And then other techniques and elements were added by Vucic and Farci, for example, they practice what I call the election ping pong. For many years in the dialogue, almost annually, you had either in one country regular election and in one other one early elections or the vice versa, which meant that the whole dialogue process was basically suspended for a year. So what this meant is both actors and both sides draw domestic legitimacy towards domestic audience from this cooperation with the West while at the same time undermining and kicking down implementation of the obligations down the road. The other part in that dynamics is that the so-called constructive ambiguity approach of Brussels backfired. What does that mean? Already in the April agreement, particularly on the association, third majority municipalities, but also on other issues, the EU practiced so-called constructive ambiguity approach, like here in this case, concretely defining the competences of the association, where there was no agreement 
between Belgrade and Pristina, the EU decided to kick the issue down the road, papering them over with some vague definitions and formulations and wording. Now, you can do this if you have a long-term plan. But as the EU did not have a long-term plan and long-term strategy, at some point that fires back. And that's exactly what happened over the association. So while you delayed the solving or deciding that point in 2013 when the April Agreement was signed or in 2014, you then got into real trouble because at the beginning of 2015, you had no progress on the issue, but you had a dichotomic confrontation between Pristina and Belgrade who filled the void with mutually exclusive political positions. Belgrade wanted executive competences for the association, which meant basically kind of third layer of governance, kind of regional ethno-territorial autonomy. Of course, it was unacceptable to Prishna and should be to the West. And Prishna wanted no executive competences at all, basically turning the association into a kind of NGO. Come 2015, there's no progress. Implementation of the other elements of the April Agreement Transfer of local elections, mayors and councillors, police and judiciary into the Kosovo system had been achieved very early on. So then this issue remained. And that was a year when the EU wanted to open the first accession chapters with Serbia. But it couldn't. So they made an intermediate agreement in August 2015 on the association just to be able to open chapters end of the year. But again, not solving or not touching the issue, the core issue. The problem is all the legal complications that Serbia signed an international agreement, which de facto recognizes Kosovo, which is a violation of its constitution, where Kosovo is a part of its country. So you could not recognize this agreement as an international agreement, which is exactly what, under political pressure, the Serbia's constitutional court later decided. Kosovo went the other way around in 2013, declaring it an international agreement, which is then outside the scope of the constitutional court. They failed to prevent the opposition from sending the August 2015 agreement to the Constitutional Court, which then ended in a ruling declaring part of August 15 agreement related to the association anti-constitutional. And this is where the process got deadlocked. I would like to ask you about the role of this international presence in the Kosovo-Serbia negotiations, there has been significant criticism about how the international community failed to establish effective governance in the region. So basically, the argument is that the international community's involvement in Kosovo, particularly through the organizations like the United Nations and the European Union, often focused on achieving stability rather than promoting democracy. So to what extent have international organizations genuinely empowered this dialogue? I would completely agree with that criticism but more related to Serbia in the dialogue in the last 10 years than to Kosovo, though on both ends. I think it's important from a scientific point of view to make one point clear. There is a contradiction, and this is a question of perception if you take this at face value in understanding of ethno, ethno-nationalist politics in the Balkans. If you take at face value the, 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 the ideology and the political positions, then... These movements or projects are about solving the ethnic question. That means defining state in an ethno-territorial sense. Uh, let's say, for example, on the Serbia side, solving the Kosovo issue means 
getting Kosovo under control of Serbian state. Same on the Kosovo end. As long as this issue is not solved and the north, for example, is existing in a kind of twilight zone in and between both states, both states, to my notion, remain unfinished states in a kind of provisional state. Now, the issue to me, the functioning, political functioning logic of these ethno-national regimes are exactly the opposite. These nationalist movements live on instrumentalizing this nationalist question. And we've seen this, for example, in the case of Croatia. Once you've solved, quote-unquote, the national question, the regimes come to an end. Because theirs is about permanent mobilization on the national question, on not having, you know, reconquered territory, having rounded up the national state territory. And this open national question basically is the raison d'etre of legitimizing authoritarian or anti-democratic rules. So they live off the opposite of what they claim their aim is. They live off the national question remaining eternally unsolved and being the potential for permanent mobilization. So in that sense... The political dialogue intervention by the West, which one could criticize, is very undemocratic. Yeah, it is undemocratic. But I mean, this goes to the question of whether you can solve conflicts where there are no democracies and bring democracy through democratic means. I think you can. It was very meaningful for a sustainable solution of the conflicts and enabling democratic transformation in the countries of the Western Balkans, because unlike in the Eastern Bloc, in the 1990s, in, in, in the, in the post-Yugoslav areas or countries, if, in my understanding, you had a, a, an opposite transformation, an authoritarian, not a democratic transformation. So this is the challenge to, still remaining since then. So in a way, intervening here in a dialogue that is a bit of a fake by its official defining terms, dialogue facilitation through conditionality and through using Western leverage, not by military intervention in this case like in the 1990s, um, is crucial because, and this is also important, since independence of Kosovo in 2008, I insist that A, the entire political elite in Serbia, from the very right to the very left, knows very well that Kosovo is gone, and B, that there is nobody more to blame than Serbian politics of the last three decades. Now, that awareness, if you leave the region to its own, or if you really go on a facilitation dialogue where the West is a neutral mediator, would not lead to a solution because, you know, like in all Balkan politics, it is very unpleasant to tell an unpleasant truth to your citizens, despite this not being really such a big obstacle. Unlike when you look at polls in Serbia, opinion polls, where when you ask citizens, which is a cost-free question to citizens, if you have to choose between Kosovo and EU, what would you choose? Of course, they would choose Kosovo. While they very well know that Serbia has lost Kosovo, and be 80% or 90% of Serbs in proper Serbia have never traveled to Kosovo, have never seen Kosovo, and they don't care compared to bread and butter issues. So, I mean, it's an obstacle for Serbia, Serbian political elite, making the final step to getting rid of Kosovo. But it's one they will not go for the conformism inherited in Balkan politics. And it's something you can use for this kind of permanent uh, nationalist mobilization, which drives undemocratic or enables undemocratic politics. So in that sense, the dialogue was a perfect move by the West to create what I call a necessary precondition for sustainable democratic transformation, both in Serbia and Kosovo. The tragedy is it started with a kind of initial approach of trading democracy for the dialogue. And the problem is because 
it's lacked this long-term master plan and strategy and led to a reversal of the historic initial dynamics in which at the end, you know, the local players outsmart the international EU and US players and made it work for them and not the other way around. The West very much after a decade ended up empty-handed on both ends, both on the dialogue and on democracy. So it enabled, in a way, a continuity in Kosovo, which was less serious of this of the Fachi's dominance up until he ended up in the Hague, in the court. And that's why this damage to democracy that was done by this trading, non-strategic one, trading democracy for the dialogue was not sustainable and lasting and grave in, in, in Kosovo. But in Serbia, it enabled this um, through the manipulation of the dialogue the transformation of the Serbian Vucic government's regime into an unseen authoritarian autocratic regime, I would say, even in comparison to the Milosevic regime. So yes, in that sense, the West here, which has started with, you know, leadership, political leadership on the unresolved Kosovo-Serbia issue, which would have meant really a sustainable structural solution of this status dispute and of the blockage of democratic transformation of Serbia and with it, wide regional repercussions in a positive sense has really led to the opposite process of basically, like in the 1990s, I would say with Milosevic, local uh, um, authoritarian leaders, autocratic leaders, exploiting our policy weakness and lack of strategic policy, political weakness, and using this for an anti-democratic transformation I would even say unprecedented in the regions post 20th century. You talked about how the potential of the Serbian accession was one of the key reasons why Serbia even entered into these negotiations. And we have also witnessed in the past 10 years, basically, that there has been somewhat of a stop in this EU expansion interest. So do you think if this hadn't happened, if the potential for the EU expansion has remained more significant, that possibly, again, the direction of the negotiations or the intensity of the negotiations would have been faster or better or promote more democracy than actually just kind of prolonged this process? I mean, in parallel of the dialogue with its original incremental approach, getting lost in translation due to the lack of a strategy. I mean, this was not, you know, written in stone that the process had to fail. It was written in stone that it had to hit a wall. But, there, you know, when there are complications, if there is political will, there could have been adjustments. However, the process went further down the road for reasons of the broader geopolitical and development and the development in the West and in the European Union. And that's what you Partly referring to one element in there is, of course, crisis of the U.S. enlargement policy that basically already started before the political dialogue. It started basically with the beginning of the EU's crisis decade with the euro crisis in 2009. So in that sense, his leadership by Chancellor Merkel on Kosovo Serbia began in her typical reactive leadership up approach. She did not decide and she did not want to lead on neither in Kosovo, Serbia, nor on enlargement. She did it as a reaction to the 2011 barricades in the north and the coincidence that we had a German K4 commander and um, Serb extremists were shooting on German soldiers. So, I mean, that's a very coincidental context that led to 
Merkel ultimately taking leadership. But this taking leadership happened already in this crisis decade of the EU and crisis mode and enlargement fatigue that was going with it because attention completely, you know, being permanent on top priority EU crises was a kind of, you know, saving enlargement from completely being dead. So in that sense, Ms. Merkel entered 10 years of pushing enlargement from basically beginning of the euro crisis to her ending her mandate in 21, saved the enlargement from completely dying already early on. But the problem, you know, became bigger. And this is, I think, where there is a historical coincidence. When I mentioned 2015, dialogue hitting a, a wall on the association issue, this happened in the context of the triple crisis of the West in 15, 16. What do I mean? First, we had the refugee, European refugee crisis. And the European refugee crisis, when we go back to the issue of what happened to democratic transformation in the Balkans, particularly in Serbia, learned a lesson to the leaders in the region, starting with Vucic, that the EU needs them more than Serbia needs the EU. So this changed the power dynamics too. Second, we had the Trump victory in the presidential elections, which meant that uh, all the nationalist leaders and ideologues returned to nationalist agendas, unfulfilled due to the post-1990s and the Kosovo intervention, Western democratization and state-building and conflict resolution policy in the region. And third, this is as important, the Brexit referendum, which basically meant that uh, with the Brits out of, uh, on their way out of the EU, Germany lost its main partner among the big four in pushing and driving enlargement and in the dialogue forward. This is crucial because this meant two things. It meant that when the Brits were out and Berlin was hoping they might maybe be able to replace London with Paris, they met a President Macron who was anti-enlargement. So the German position and, and the path towards membership went broken because the basic unity over the aim of the perspective of membership for Western Balkan countries was gone with Mr. Macron. That's symbolized in his 2018 blockage of opening accession talks with North Macedonia and Albania, despite the commission for a, a lot, more than a year already had stated that they had fulfilled all conditions. So, I mean, on that end, you see the EU exporting instability through the migration issue to the region. So no sticks and carrot broken. So this learned a lesson to the local leaders. And I would say that if you look into the transformation of the Vucic regime, that was the decisive point of no return towards on the path towards authoritarian and autocratic transformation. So this parallel is no coincidence. And the third element, which is very important as a consequence, is we had this unique, and this is something one cannot highlight enough, because it's not being reflected enough, neither in European foreign and security politics, let alone in science. So when this incremental approach broke down in the dialogue over the association, we in 2017, under a new EU foreign policy chief, Ms. Frederica Mogherini, got a new phase in the dialogue declared in summer 2017, and that was the so-called negotiations on the final and comprehensive agreement. That made very much sense because if you cannot uphold the incremental process, it would have meant freezing Serbia's accession negotiations because the chapter 35 is there on the dialogue, and that was part of the incremental process, progressing in the dialogue, Serbia progressing in parallel in accession negotiations. So, I mean, if you cannot save that process, the only way out is jumping to the end point. And that means a final and comprehensive agreement 
in which you pack all the issues, status issue, integration of Kosovo Serbs into the Kosovo state and society, and all the bilateral dispute issues, open issues. However, we got exactly the opposite. We got a mockery of negotiation on a final and comprehensive legally binding agreement. We got the EU's foreign and security policy chief together with her four-member team colluding with the two leaders, Vucic and Fachi, hijacking the EU's dialogue process, privatizing it, shielding it away from member states, capitals, and governments, and entering into dangerous behind-closed-door first and then later made public negotiations on something that was completely opposite of the aims of the dialogue and the values and democratic values and principles. And our policy and lessons learned from the 1990s in the Western Balkans, that means an agreement on an ethno-territorial division, colluding with the Trump administration. So with an administration that is very close to those nationalist agendas on the one side and the other side, what kind of transactionalist approach and philosophy. That process went on for three years and it failed, thankfully, due to resistance, both from the region, from Kosovo against the president, from civil society within the West and the Western Balkans, and from capitals, starting with Berlin and London. And was then tried to rewind by Mr. Trump's envoy, Ambassador Grinnell, for another year. Also failed, but it left behind, and this is also something one could stress as much as possible. We saw the toppling of a democratically elected government in Kosovo, the first Kosovo-Kurti government, by a U.S. administration. So the first toppling of a democratic elected government on European soil in the 21st century by Washington. So this is important to, to, to understand the context. It's a context in which, on the one side, we have waning leverage by the West, by the EU, because of this a lack of unity over policy aims and strategy towards the region, and an undermining of the EU's uh, prime values in the region, values within and in the region, signaled or symbolized by EU officials in Brussels and partly also in the field in the region, because that's a policy we see that is continuing such kind of backdoor intransparent uh, transactionalist deals, which basically mean a colluding or an appeasement with ethno-nationalist agendas. We see this since the land swap negotiations uh, having failed through so-called election law reform negotiations led by the EU and the US administration, 2020, 2021 in, in Bosnia-Herzegovina. And we see this through figures like chief operational official of Ms. Mogherini, Angelina Eichers in the AAS, or the Mr. Orban's EU enlargement commissioner, Raheli, or some other people on the ground. So yeah, this is, you know, way beyond what you were asking about the impact of the weakening of the current of EU membership, the enlargement policy approach to the region. And it's leveraged really through it, both on the dialogue and on democratic. We can go to, to the question about what implications the war in Ukraine, the Russian escalation of war against Ukraine had for the regional stability, for the negotiations, how has this changed the situation? And also most significantly, I would ask, have Western organizations and in what way altered their agenda as a consequence? Well, that's exactly a good question because, I mean, we've said in the beginning that something is obviously profoundly wrong with the current negotiations and the current agreement. 
if it doesn't lead to diffusion of tensions, but escalation of tensions. And that's important to follow up on that issue. I mean, so the framework of the German-French initiative, which was basically launched these negotiations last summer, in summer 22, so basically more or less half a year into the Ukraine war at the one end. And around the time when the EU decided to extraordinarily lend candidate status to Ukraine, first of all, to at all agree on a membership perspective, which there was no agreement on that before the Russian invasion. And second, to go outside the merit-based procedure. Um, again, both because of the threatening of Europe through Ukraine, a values-based Europe, a democratic Europe by Russia, that means this was a extraordinary political decision based on defense of our liberal democratic values against Russia. Now, one would have hoped for, if not expected, that that will give a new boost on, you know, applying the same or strengthening the same values in our enlargement policy towards the region. And what I would have hoped for that, for example, um, through the Ukraine war, nobody coming more under pressure in the region than Serbian leader Vucic with his policy of maneuvering between East and West, Russia, China, and the EU, and the US, or so-called policy of sitting between two jurors, with getting under extreme pressure also of the material basis of that policy, that's access to cheap Russian energy sources, this would be a perfect basis for the West to shift course, uh, using that window of opportunity to seriously pressure the Vucic regime to finally reorient towards the West to end this manipulative tactical balancing in between one or the other and playing one against the other, and for a decisive shift in the dialogue. Unfortunately, as we can see in what's wrong with this German-French approach, basically the Lajak proposal, we can see exactly the opposite. We see more doubling down on, on the transactionalist, values-free enlargement policy of we've called this once enlargement being on bureaucratic autopilot based on faking progress and process through the EU bureaucracy and the transactionalist approach negotiations like on Bosnia, I've mentioned earlier, on Kosovo, what happened? So first of all, was this agreement and this initiative was is going back to the status issue, but it's also a departure from negotiations on a final and comprehensive agreement. It's not a final and comprehensive agreement. It was not meant to be. So it's a kind of intermediate, very vague to define intermediate agreement. Now, the question follows, why would the West, why would the players, Berlin particularly, because you know that when it comes to the region, even if Berlin and Paris act jointly, it's always on, on German initiative. France is not that proactive on the regional enlargement. So the question is, what is the motivation? Why at once, and Germany was very much fighting this land swap negotiations, insisting with an agenda of a real final and comprehensive agreement, a sustainable one. So why did the German government depart from that, at least for the time being, for some intermediate period? Within that context of the Ukraine war, when we had new opportunities and leverage towards Belgrade, they did it, I think, out of a lack of political will or leadership. And they did it based on, to my opinion, entirely wrong conclusion that our leverage over Serbia and Vucic uh, was weakened and too weak to go towards a decisive step because of the weakening of the EU enlargement perspective. Now, that might not be entirely wrong, but still, 
if we talk about uh, Serbia's balancing between East and West, one needs to mention that um, would Serbia be pressured to have to take a choice? There are no two options. They can either continue the path towards EU integration. There is no integration with Russia. I mean, economically, physically, politically, there is no basis. So, I mean, this would be a choice between European integration, Western integration, and self-isolation and chaos. So whatever the EU enlargement carrot might be objectively weakened, the leverage is still sufficient, and particularly and even more so in the context of the Ukraine war. So what we did is, you know, we declared our leverage um, much less than it is. We declared the, the political strength of Mr. Vucic uh, vis-a-vis the West much stronger than it really is. And then based this whole policy basically on an appeasement towards Vucic. That created an ethnic imbalance in the process against Pristina. And that created a process where we had a government of Mr. Kurti and his party, Veteran Dossia, that insists on being based on liberal democratic values, democracy, and rule of law. Basically, Berlin departed from its original positions. We previously tried to win over political parties during the Landswap episode in Kosovo to side with us. So we ended up in, in a very unfortunate process in which they ended up, the West, in declaring the Kurtigavan being the problem, to a large part because they were defending the negotiation principles and values that should be ours and not Kosovo's only, uh, basically remaining uncritical to its value. So this is at the core of why this process is wrong from the beginning, why I always expected it not to function. It also created a, a lot of additional problems, one being that, to my understanding and previous German government's understanding, the contentious issue of the association, establishment of the association, which is a particularly a hot topic with Kurti and his government because of some comedic ideological traits in his policy linked to Kosovo Serbs, is particularly difficult to implement with him. Um, so it was always the understanding that the only framework within that can be realistically implemented with a Kurti government or Kurti part of the government can only be in the context of recognition and a final and comprehensive agreement. Uh, was it not that before Kurti, it was imagined that the association would come prior to the recognition and the recognition would come as a reaction to the association? Well, no, I mean, as I said, the association was always planned to be part of the first agreement. So, of course, in that sense, it would be way before any recognition. The problem is because they didn't solve the issue of its its substance, its competences. The whole process broke down over it. Then, basically, we jumped from that to at least officially declaring 2017 a negotiation on a final and comprehensive agreement. So, I mean, all the issues related to the association or you know, the fear of Kosovo side, for good reason that this will lead to the, uh, at least a, a nucleus of a later ethno-territorial secession of part of the Serb-majority municipalities, can only be confronted seriously in the context of Serbia recognizing Kosovo, so in the context of a final and comprehensive agreement. I mean, if you would insist that they have no executive mandate, it, you cannot get an agreement with Vucic, and that's what we're currently seeing. It's the whole basic agreement is currently trying to circumvent that issue because, I mean, in a way, the escalation and the, the trouble and the conflict with Pristina, the U.S. ambassador, for example, Hovenier in, in Pristina has stated that it will not have executive mandate, 
but we've never seen implementation because that is not consent with Belgrid. And I don't see how you get Belgrid on that point. In the framework of awake, again, intermediate agreements. So, I mean, all kinds of complications that come with an intermediate step agreement instead of moving to real negotiations on a real final and comprehensive agreement. So, as I said, I think it's no coincidence that in the original framework of the dialogue 2012-13 hit a wall over the association, and it's no coincidence that this vague, wrong approach of intermediate agreement already basically collapsed over this issue of the association. Um, because, as I said, it's putting up and front as a top priority, and it's basically allowed even Vucic to make that top priority an issue that has never been resolved. I need to make a side note important. Why do we have the association in the April 2013 agreement at all? This was something that Belgrade requested. We have a very strong ethnic minority rights and protections within the Kosovo constitution, which is within the Atisari plan that is part of the constitution. It could theoretically not be stronger than what's already in the constitution. And Belgrade knew that. So this was not about defending minority rights of Kosovo Serbs. This was meant as a face-saving tool for Belgrade in 2013 to de facto recognize Kosovo through the April Agreement. And it was meant as a tool for Belgrade being forced to, after three decades in which it told Kosovo Serbs in the north that they are part of Serbia, they were forced to tell them, okay, we're sorry, but after three decades, you might probably end up in Kosovo. So that's where this thing started. But as a face-saving tool, it at the same time simulated something to the Kosovo Serbs by its very form that it cannot be. It cannot be a Republic of Serbska. So that's the structural dilemma and problem with the association. That was not solved by the EU within the incremental approach because they never had a plan. They accepted it, but never had a plan what to do with its problems, structural problems. And, and now that it's become so controversial and contentious over the years, how do you deflect the, the fears by Pristina that this will be a tool of something that could end up like in, in a Republika Srpska? I don't see a way how you could do that in an intermediate agreement in which you basically establish this association, but have not solved the status dispute or don't even have a plan. And that's even worse for this uh, current agreement. There, again, is not even a master plan behind it on what are the steps from that agreement, if it, even if it was implemented up to the to a final agreement and a recognition of Kosovo or Serbia. Without the formal recognition, the association will always be a danger to the to the territorial integrity, functionality, and sovereignty of the Republic of Kosovo. Currently we are in the stage where it's not about at all about implementing of the basic agreement. It's about stopping escalation, but always with the hope in the back of the negotiators like Mr. Lajak and Borrell that this clears down the path for implementing this agreement. And I would, as I said, insist that this agreement is unimplementable for political reasons, for entailing the wrong approach from the very outset. That's what makes the current situation so difficult. We might be able, or the West might be able, with a very strong engagement to reach, for the time being, a restabilization of the situation on the ground and no more ethnic violence and protests and violence by special police of Kosovo in the north with Kosovo Serb citizens. But even if we reach that, there's no sustainable path to a solution currently. But I mean, this agreement has to ultimately fail 
broader West uh, uh, to make a new start with a serious, uh, really sustainable approach. So yeah, many years ahead of the process not being stable and let alone the developments in Serbia when it comes to democracy. Thank you so much. That brings us to an end of another insightful episode of Review of Democracy. I want to extend my heartfelt thanks to our guest Bodo Weber for sharing his expertise and shedding light on the democratic implications of the Kosovo-Serbia dialogue. Thank you once again. Thank you once again for having me. Thank you for joining us on Review of Democracy and until next time.